This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal, interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Fraley. Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Today I have with me Karen K.B. Berger. Uh, K.B., welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, would you mind telling the folks what you do? Sure. Um, So I am a physician assistant. I practice in Los Angeles at the LA LGBT Center, which is claimed to be the largest LGBT center in the world. Um, I work in the sexual health and education department, and I've been there for a little over two years. Additionally, I work uh, part-time in dermatology practice in a private setting as well as teach um, at a local physician assistant program where I've spent the last year and a half implementing an LGBTQI and non-binary medical didactic curriculum and sort of expanding that idea to hopefully reach as many medical training programs as possible. Wow. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about. That's all very <laughs> exciting and cool. So first of all, I just want to say it's always nice to talk to another PA. Um, yes. it's, it's a cool medical profession. Uh, and then I just want the listeners to know that this is our first like Skype interview. So I'm excited and um, thank you. I'm in Brooklyn and you're in LA. So thank you for getting up early uh, for me. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, what motivated you to get into medicine? I think at uh, to some extent, I've always been interested in science and medicine and math. I kind of have that type of brain. So I did my undergraduate degree at Binghamton University, which is a a state university in New York, which is where I'm from, born and raised. I completed a degree in chemistry and biological anthropology. So I kind of had that, that feel and that background. But when I graduated, I was 21 and I was not ready to commit to graduate school medicine and all I wanted to do was leave New York and figure out what else was out there. So I lived in a few other cities, Denver, Austin, St. Louis, and this was all before this, these were cool places. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of did some nonprofit work. I took some classes and I eventually moved back to New York, regrouped myself, took the prerequisites that I needed to apply to PA school. I I contemplated uh, medical school and going and becoming a nurse practitioner, but um, actually my mother really pushed me and, and, and introduced me to the PA profession and I applied actually two cycles and got in the second time at um, a university in Connecticut called Quinnipiac University, where I just kind of found my medical passion. And it's just, I always knew I wanted to help people. I know that's very cliche, but I do think that's the main reason why people go into medicine. So yeah, I just kind of always knew I, I enjoyed science and medicine and, and interacting with individuals. And what you mentioned you had thought about MD and PPA. What, why PA? What motivated you there? So yeah, that's a really great question. 
I think a lot of us PAs could be doctors or DOs, MDs, and there's something about the ability to move throughout the medical world. For example, we're trained very generally and learn everything in a very short period of time. And some people decide to go into primary care, urgent care, emergency medicine as new graduates. Some people know exactly what they wanna do. But if that ever changes over time, I enjoy the flexibility of moving around within medicine. I'm the kind of person where I get bored a little bit. <laughs> sure. Or really, uh, the way I look at it is I just love to learn new things and be mm -hmm. intellectually. So I enjoy the idea that life changes and my interests might change as well with my profession so I can move around within specialties. Yeah, so why, why have you chosen the specialty that you're in? What, what kind of got you there? <sighs> Loaded question. Uh <-huh>. So <laughs> my background is actually in dermatology. I was a medical assistant in dermatology for a little over two years prior to PA school and I loved it. Not thinking I ever would, um, but I really enjoyed the fact that actually Patients weren't generally sick, um, and I enjoyed that aspect that we can kind of manage patients out, outpatient, um, develop relationships. I enjoyed the fact that there was a surgical component to it as well as a, a medical component. So when I went to PA school, I was very open-minded, and actually I learned what I didn't like versus what I really loved. So when I graduated, I knew I didn't want to do internal medicine on a hospital floor and work in an ICU. I knew that wasn't for me, but I wasn't 100% sure what I was passionate about. So I actually took my first position in a dermatology practice in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and my supervising physician was phenomenal. We have a wonderful relationship. I learned a ton. We were very, very busy practice. We did a lot of um, skin cancer surgery, so it was great learning experience, but I didn't really feel the fire getting up every day and going to work, uh, that, that kind of passion and uh, interaction and space for me. So, and I think also personally, I wasn't enjoying where I was living. So my partner and I decided to move cross country to Los Angeles. And I started just kind of doing more research on trans care. It was becoming a little more uh, out there in terms of the social world and the medical world. So I, I started researching the, the medical aspects of trans care a little bit more and became very interested. So I decided I wanted to work at the LGBT center. So somehow I kind of wiggled my way in and ended up in the sexual health and education department and just absolutely fell in love with what I was doing. Um, I like to say that it's 10% medicine, 90% mental health. <laughs> and I think one thing that I, I contemplated at one point professionally was a, a, a career path in social work and um, counseling, just because my, my family members are in those fields. So, um, so, so, so sexual health hasn't changed much. There's not too much to it, uh, but there's so much to it from an education perspective. So I really enjoy having conversations with individuals about basic concepts that will improve their health and well-being, and it's just been fantastic. Yeah, and yeah, there may not be like too much to it, but there's a lot of people who are really uncomfortable doing it, 
and so that kind of creates this this mystery around it that makes it more complicated than it maybe needs to be absolutely and i think my family just kind of uh, analyzing the way i grew up was always very open about sex and sexual life and that was never something that you weren't allowed to discuss or you weren't allowed to talk about or express yourself so i think it's almost like the the road kind of brought me to this space that was very comfortable for me and um it's it's very clear when people feel comfortable with you because they will express themselves in ways that they probably rarely if ever have done before Mm-hmm. Um, and how does your personal identity fit into your decision-making about working at the LGBT center? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I am a cisgender queer female person. I came out when I was around 19. So I was a sophomore in college, never actually thought about dating women prior to that, which is kind of interesting. And just had a really clear moment of meeting somebody that just completely introduced that part of me. I guess um, from a stereotypical perspective, I was a tomboy. I maybe dressed more androgynous. I wasn't really into makeup and things of that nature. Um, So maybe perhaps, you know, I joke with my friends like, why didn't you tell me sort of situations. Um, But yeah, I came out when I was in college and um, that kind of combining all of these elements of of yourself to figure out what you really want to do in the world. It's such a fascinating process. And I think working at the center has been very affirming for me not only from a queer perspective, but also like a medical professional perspective. Like there are other wonderful queer medical professionals out there that are passionate about improving the lives of the community members. And it's just great to be surrounded by those people who've either been working for two years or 20 years. And Mm -hmm. it's just been really um, affirming, I think is a great word to describe it. How were you out during your medical education process then? So my school is, um, I would say, very more of a serious school, very academic, but there was a huge community service element to it. So you were encouraged to do extracurricular activities along with all of your other studies. And I remember when I got in, you had to fill out a form. Um, everybody was set up with a mentor when they went to school. And on that form, it said, do you would you prefer an LGBT mentor? And I was so excited about that. And um, I got set up with my mentor and and she also identifies as a cis uh, lesbian person and queer person. And yes, I was always very out. I was the only one quote unquote that was out in class or gay in class. And when you, when I, when the more I talked with my mentor, the more we realized that my school kind of always had a lesbian in every class. Mm-hmm. Um, her mentor was a lesbian, her mentor was lesbian, my mentee's a lesbian, her mentee, her mentee, et cetera. So I was always out, and, but I'm not really sure if I fit some sort of seat there. Um, mm-hmm. 
So it's kind of interesting to reflect on on those things. But yes, I was out um, and through time, other people, we all found each other basically. Yeah. <laughs> Have there been any things in your life as, as a human who needs healthcare that you feel like were lacking for you as a patient that, that, um, that helps you inform how you provide care to your patients? Yeah, so I, I have to say I am a very privileged person. I'm a white cis female. I grew up in New York, very diverse place, um, middle class town, but I, I feel I had a wonderful education and I also naturally just enjoyed working extremely hard. So I do feel very privileged that I've always had healthcare. I've always had access to education. But with that being said, recently, maybe about a year ago, I went to a new primary care uh, provider who was wonderful and open and fine, um, but it was in kind of a larger healthcare system, so it's hard to navigate who is a queer provider or get an appointment with those people. So I asked this person, so, you know, my partner and I might want to have children one day. Um, and my partner is a cis female as well. How do we navigate the system here at this institution? And she's been working there for eight years and did not know how to answer that question. Hmm. And she wasn't cruel about it. She wasn't, I didn't feel discriminated against. But even the, the, the awkwardness of the fact that this person had never thought about it, mm -hmm. uh, encountered it, and was able to directly answer that question um, was quite humbling for me um, as a privileged white girl from Long Island. <laughs> um, and then that helps me to kind of reflect on all of the much more traumatic uh, in instances that I've heard from patients outside of that. So a kind of that basic thing of feeling quote, not normal, mm -hmm. is very, very common for queer people in healthcare. I mean, I'm, we're, we're trying to change that with, with platforms like this mm -hmm. and, and things that we do outside in our profession, but it's still very apparent when you go out there, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and we'll never each understand all of the things that our patients face, but having one or two instances where you feel like such an other in a place where you're supposed to feel like the thing that's being taken care of can really provide that sort of understanding or that empathy for what our patients go through on a daily basis. Absolutely. And, and she, you know, she said, I will look into it. I will get back to you. And she did, mm -hmm. which was great. But it was just kind of like, oh, okay. So I have to go to uh, an infertility clinic in order to access care, but I'm not, I don't know if I'm in for me. So it's, it's very interesting because it almost uh, directs you into a box that you never thought about. Mm -hmm. But when you go into the quote, normal world space, uh, it, it, you're reminded of that. Yeah, yes. I am really curious about the LGBTQ center that you work at because um, many of us where we work, we don't have such a thing. I mean, in New York, of course, we have Colin Lord and such, but could you tell us just a little bit, just a nutshell about the agency and what y'all do? Totally, yeah. 
we, the LGBT Center has been around for, I think it opened in 1969. So this was prior to the HIV AIDS crisis. And I actually just learned that from a coworker that we had a few different services and one of them was actually a women's clinic and it was all free and, and we found some old pictures, which was kind of fun. And then um, AIDS happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that changed everything in many ways medically in the community it was a a terrible terrible time for queer people and that became a huge focus for the lgbt center and the um focus was more maybe on gay men naturally because it mm -hmm. needed to happen so over time, obviously, we progressed and overcame that, thank goodness. And now, um, early in the 2000s, it transitioned from a private clinic center to a what's called an FQHC or federally qualified center, health center. So we have a combination of federal funding, state funding, but also donations as well. And as of today, my understanding is we have over 700 employees. So I work in the medical space, which maybe is 25, 30% of the entire institution. So we provide from a medical perspective, we have full primary care services, which is all inclusive HIV services, trans services, um, women's health and women's identified health as well as my department, which is the sexual health and education department. So we do STD uh, testing, treatment assessment, pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis. And then also we start people on HIV medications to bridge them if they're newly diagnosed. In addition, there's social services, there's support groups, there's um, connection to fostering children, there's aging LGBT, we're building a brand new building, which is a huge, huge um, accomplishment that's going to provide housing to youth and aging LGBT as well as services. So everything's expanding really fast. What started as a really small little clinic is now huge. And also to mention, I think historically because of the crisis, we were kind of known as a white gay cis clinic mm -hmm. and everybody at work there maybe uh fit into those boxes but when you go to a meeting i mean it is so incredibly diverse from immigration status to race to religion to orientation gender etc it's really really beautiful actually we all don't fit in the meeting anymore oh, it's cool to find a space like that so and the you know i should say the ceo has been the CEO on and off for like 20 years. Lori Jean, a huge, well-known supporter, advocate in the community, um, and has just really changed everything, so. Wow, that is such an amazing resource to have in the community, my goodness. It's, it's, it, it makes me feel happy, it makes me feel sad sometimes because I think about all the people out there that don't have access to places like us and people also drive from really far areas. California is huge, so people drive from all over just to get tested. 
uh -huh. because they don't have that space where they are. They don't know of any resources that offer that. So sometimes I do feel sad about people who live in more rural or suburban areas that they don't have access. Um, but it, it is a wonderful space to be in. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you had brought something up where you were talking about how, you know, the clinic can, can sometimes be associated with white gay cis men and HIV AIDS uh, care. I was curious, a lot, a lot of times I think when we talk about LGBTQ health, we spend a lot of time talking about G and T, and we don't spend too much time talking about the L in LGBTQ health. And I was curious what sort of uh, medical services are provided to that community at your clinic. Yeah, so our, so my department is the sexual health and education department and we're, we're open to anybody. So, for example, recently, I would say in the past six to nine months, maybe we've seen more of an influx of cis women, um, possibly that identify as, as heterosexual or bisexual, coming to see us because of defunding of Planned Parenthood or less funding. Mm -hmm. So they'll go to Planned Parenthood, which historically is a space for women-centered care, although they're open to everybody as well, um, was charging a lot of money for people who didn't have access to those funds or didn't have access to healthcare. And that became a barrier for these individuals. So we've, I've just anecdotally noticed an influx of that. So we see everybody um, in terms of the services that we provide for women's centered. And when I say women centered, it's anyone who identifies, has ever identified or identifies on some sort of spectrum. Um, so including uh, non-binary and non-conforming as well. And we have a separate space. It's called the Audrey Lord Clinic. It's run by uh, Angie Magania, who's a nurse practitioner who's fantastic. And she has really set up a space that is comfortable. So on Saturdays, that space is all women working uh, participating and then so there's there's that separation there so people can feel comfortable um, sitting in the waiting room and not being surrounded by first of all a lot of people mm -hmm. but then generally feeling uh, a sense of um, minority status because they're female identified in a majority male I think that's slowly transitioning though um, but um, yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, Angie and I have talked about this idea that women's health is kind of, we feel becoming more of an epidemic, like this access and lack of research and interest in basic things like bacterial vaginosis that's been around forever that people struggle with consistently the chronicity, the recurrence of it, uh, but there's really not many new studies that are published about it, but yet it's such a common, it's the most common cause of vaginitis in a clinic or, or infection that affects anyone with, with a vagina. So it, it's kind of an interesting time, I think, for women-centered health um, from, a, from a sexual health and, and reproductive perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's an area that often is not addressed when we talk about um, sexual health. 
we normally talked about gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, but we don't talk too much about vaginosis, of course. Yeah, and I think also, and this is just my opinion, I think historically obstetrics and gynecology is maybe a little more conservative, a little more binary. For example, a lot of my cisgender female patients have never heard of post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which is a mechanism to treat a potential exposure for HIV infection um, within a 72-hour period. And most cis women who have access have been going to OBGYNs since the time that they were sexually active. So it kind of blows my mind that you would never discuss PEP or post-exposure prophylaxis in a setting that revolves around women-centered sexual health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now, how, um, in your clinic space, um, you're handling a lot of the sexual health and education component. Um, how have you felt just personally in your identity in that situation? Have you felt like, um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how are gay men, um, how, how do you feel like that relationship goes? Do you feel like, um, yeah, that's my question. As a, as a female person? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> I love it. I mean, uh -huh. I have learned a lot about things that I never learned in school. <laughs> I mean, I think what's really beautiful about queer health in general is you learn from your patients. And, and I, I can't speak for other areas, but for example, for dermatology, people don't know the names of the benign growths that are growing on them. They come to you they kind of maybe look something up, but like they're really big words. They don't make sense. And, you know, they want an answer from you. Whereas I feel like with queer health, because the population has had to figure things out a little bit on their own, they have a really good understanding of what's going on now. That being said, I think there's a lack of education in sexual health. And that's part of why I do the work that I do because I can uh, act as a, um, a, a provider to information basically but that's not necessarily accessible but um yeah i think sometimes like i'm the first female that's ever seen their penis <laughs> which is always kind of um cute i think i mean they're just embarrassed and and i just say look you know this is what i do i'm happy to help you if you do not feel comfortable, I'm happy to grab somebody else to see you. It's all about you right now. So whatever you need to make you feel comfortable and improve your, your health, I'm, I'm here to support that. So I don't really take offense to things like that. I would say sometimes I do, um, I have noticed that sometimes older gentlemen sometimes maybe feel a little, um, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but it, you know, I, I look young. I, I'm 33, but I think sometimes I look a little bit younger. I'm a female, so I'm automatically perceived as maybe a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had that happen many, many times. Um, and sometimes when I'm, uh, sometimes I do have some, not clash, but just some pushback or or kind of like I'm being tested from older people which I maybe can happen in any setting but um 
you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of trust issues with queer people in medicine. So, so I don't take things like that personally. And, and when people come in and they're upset or angry, I really try not to take that personally because there, there's a lot, there's a lot that affects queer people on a daily yeah. basis. So. Yeah, you mentioned the being mistaken for a nurse before. Um, I am curious how you find like the medical profession in general, um, how that's been for you. As a female person or? As, well, I mean, whichever aspects, you know. Yeah, where I work is predominantly cis men. Mm -hmm. So, and then, yeah. Um, I'm the provider, which is kind of interesting. So the other staff is mostly cis men. And then I'm the provider, which I guess historically is maybe from a hierarchical perspective, uh, elevated in some sort of way, which not necessarily, but um, I, I used to get very upset by that <laughs> concept of being called a nurse, for example, our, we have a, a nurse who does post-exposure prophylaxis. He does a lot of the intake and the, the, the counseling and the linkage. And he is 60. Sorry, sorry, Brian, but you're 60. <laughs> and he's a cis gay man. And the patient knows that, you know, hi, I'm Brian, I'm a nurse. I'm going to walk you the provider now. And even after all that time, they still, the, sometimes people assume that I'm the nurse and that's the doctor. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, it's not, it's not our fault. I mean, this is like decades of <laughs> what it was like. I do think that I'm way more aware of it. And sometimes I wish that PAs were farther along in the process of leadership. Yeah in the medical professional and representation because it's hard because you're not a doctor but you're not a nurse but everybody knows nurses so you're a pa and most people put an apostrophe s at the end which it's not <laughs> <laughs> and it just kind of puts you in this weird position and then also i live in los angeles so when i say pa people think of producer assistants I'm sure yeah <laughs> yeah so that's been interesting but yeah, I have had many, many instances where I walk people in my room and say, hi, I'm the private provider. And they'll say, oh, are you the doctor? Or, oh, when am I going to see the doctor? Oh, am I supposed to tell you about what's going on? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know anyone else's experiences, but sometimes I think like, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm younger? Is it because I'm not wearing a white coat? Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't. So. Or all the above. I know. It's. Yeah. It's, I, I've been frustrated at periods of time, I think in the beginning, um, and contemplated like, well, if I have a doctor in front of my name, will that change things? And I think over time, I've actually realized that it probably won't. Yeah. I mean, one of the encouraging things is that medical, uh, medical students, what, what a medical student looks like nowadays is so different from what it was even 10 years ago. Um, Ruth Balwig, who runs the PA program that I went to, she did a presentation once where she showed the very first class and it was all completely white men with one African-American male. And then the most recent graduating class, which was like three quarters women of color. 
And um, it's just really cool to see that, you know, the workforce in medicine in the places of, like we mentioned, there's artificial hierarchies in medicine, but, but what's considered a top tier position that there's more and more women getting into it is encouraging. Absolutely, because I really feel strongly that everybody's capable to do the same position. I mean, if they have the access and, and the abilities to do it, I, I, I don't really believe in, um, you know, men are stronger, women are smarter, you know, all of those stereotypes. The more you go through life, you meet people that can do all sorts of different things. And I do feel if put in an equal position, you can do anything the same or better. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that the, the clinic, you, well, the community center that you work in has multiple things from primary care to, to gender affirming therapy, and you're in the sexual health clinic. I was curious why, why there? And, um, you know, because it seems like you've got a really robust knowledge around all LGBTQ medicine. I'm mm -hmm. curious what your passion is around sexual health, where that came from. Yeah, I don't think I, I, I cognizantly thought about it prior to working there. Um, primary care, I, I'm the kind of person where I um, like to observe and really feel comfortable before I put myself in a intense situation because I think I'm kind of an intense person. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker and I'm very type A and I'm a medical provider, so... Putting all that together sometimes is a little bit of a, a mess. But um, so, so I feel like sexual health was a really good stepping stone for me as a new provider into queer health. Um, I really, really love learning about gender affirming care. But, something, but sometimes primary care for me personally uh, overwhelms me, <laughs> to be quite honest. And... I think that's a possibility at some point, but I'm, I'm three years out now. I finally feel like I know how to be a provider and that is half the battle, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. um, you know, like you're, you have all this knowledge and then you get out there and you're excited and, and thrilled and you, you know the information, but you're like, how do I do this? Not to say I didn't have an incredible PA education because I feel very, very fortunate that my program uh, provided me that amazing stepping stone. But it, the first couple of years, I, I felt very, I was just figuring it out. How do I manage? How do I have multiple plans, uh, backup plans? What, you know, how do I discuss expectations? How do I portray if this doesn't work, we're going to try this and you have to feel comfortable that, do you feel comfortable with this plan? I think that's one of the most important questions to ask your patients because you are providing them a service to improve their health and they need to be uh, on board with that. Now, again, I work in outpatient and I'm not dealing with very ill people. So it, I would say in a different context, that might be, um, there might be some differences there, but where I'm at, I, I just... I just love the education piece of sexual health. I mean, it's it's so basic. Nobody got it 
So sexual health in general is pretty poor in this country. And then you add this queer health, like my mom and dad never sat down and said, okay, so two lesbians get together and this is what happens. You know, I've taught them a lot (laughs) about that stuff. And then also I find that it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter your background, socioeconomic status, race, people still ask very, very basic questions. And then also to piggyback off of that, providers do not know very basic answers to very basic questions. So um, I also find it's way more fun (laughs) than primary care. But yeah, it's just kind of, it's just, this is kind of the path that I've been on lately. And um, I I don't know if that will change. I think one thing I've, I've thought about is I love pediatrics actually and youth. So possibly at some point kind of transitioning into to that space for, for gender affirming care, but um, not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good segue though, because I want you to talk to us a little bit about the project that you're doing kind of on your free time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just kind of uh, reviewing, I, I I also teach at a local PA program called Charles Drew University, which is in South LA. A couple of friends of mine that actually were, went to my PA school and worked at my PA school moved out here as well and, and restarted this program. So it was around, it was actually one of the first PA programs that was around for many years, closed down for whatever reasons, and then these two individuals kind of restarted it uh, about three years ago. And I did, I actually was considering working there. I was a very new provider, didn't really know what I, what path I wanted to take yet. And I didn't, part of my interview was giving a presentation and, and the presentation I gave was on introduction to transgender and non-conforming healthcare. And the setting became more of a information session than a interview because the majority of the people in the room had very minimal experience with trans people and gender non-conforming people. And there was so much interest just in that space. So they invited me. I I didn't end up taking that position because I wanted to work clinically. I... um, I, they invited me to be a guest lecturer and kind of give a similar lecture. And that kind of sprouted to this idea of creating a LGBTQI and non-conforming didactic curriculum or, or um, academic curriculum. So I've spent the past year and a half piloting that curriculum and I teach everything from preventative care for men who have sex with men and men who have sex with men and women or introduction to aging LGBT issues or medical legal issues for queer people or reproductive and family planning for all the things that were just left out of my medical training and also from other students have heard, other first students in training have heard, you know, some of the professors uh, misinform students about HIV, for example, like HIV is transmitted most commonly through high-risk sexual behavior, also known as homosexual tendencies. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong <laughs> and on many levels, both medically and politically incorrect. And these things are still being said in 
schools and then you know a couple people might catch up catch on to that in class and be like that's not right but then the majority doesn't and then they go out and they think oh that, that's what i learned in school so the my experiences in the education system has been wonderful and super humbling and really motivates me to continue this process of expanding medical education for all people, whether you're a trainee, resident, or just a queer person. So I kind of uh, started coming up with this idea of blending those things or bringing everything together through, uh, originally just started as an idea, now as a podcast, <laughs> um, and just kind of interviewing people that work in either the medical field, mental health profession, addiction, community where their space is ultimately improving the health and well-being of queer people. So it's been very time consuming, but really humbling and beautiful and rewarding because I met, I get to meet wonderful people like you and get to introduce the world to all these positive beautiful people that are doing wonderful things. And I, I think that's really important right now in our current climate, because there's a lot of negativity out there, you know, with the trans military ban. I mean, just like terrible things happening, but there are also wonderful things happening to improve the lives of individuals in small places, large institutions. Um, and as much as there are things happening, we still have a really long way to go. So I kind of want to just be part of that. <laughs> yeah. So where can people um, find out more about your, your project? Yeah. yeah. So um, queer, the name of it is called Queer Education. I do have a website, www.queermeducation.com, and you can access the podcast episodes and also just some general information uh, via show notes about the the show itself, so the information that's provided in the show, it's a pretty wide range of information. So there are more medically focused episodes. For example, I just came out with the gender affirming and non-conforming surgery episode. So if you don't have a medical background, there's a lot of resources on the website to kind of review some of that information before you listen. Um, and then I also interviewed my friends who own a queer salon down in Long Beach, California, and how getting an affirming haircut or is so much more than just a haircut. Um, and then I also do a little platform on Instagram where I try to provide some, some good sexual health information and just general queer health information, and that's uh, at Queer Education. And there's a Facebook group um, where I post articles and yeah, just, um, it's just been really great meeting people through this process and people have messaged me with questions, people I don't know, people I do know. And one thing that I, I think that I realize I'm, I'm kind of good at is connecting. So I think that's one thing that's really important with medicine is know what you know, know what you don't know, know when to get help. Thank you, Professor Lord, our, my former director. Um, and, and, and that's getting, knowing where to get help is half the battle with queer health because you, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to get the pronouns right every time, although I do encourage that um, <laughs> as much as possible. Um, but you do need to know how to present yourself, 
how to get your patients safe care. And I, I tell my students all the time, your job is to provide a service that improves the lives of individuals. And if you are not providing that service, you are doing something wrong. I think that's, that's excellent. Is there anything else you think our, our listeners should know? Oh, um, I think that queer people need us as medical providers. And I encourage anybody who, whether they've been practicing for a few years or 20 years, to go to an LGBTQ conference and put yourself in a space that maybe you've never been in before and learn about the community. The social things are just as important as the medical things. Um, and then learn how to present your clinic to a, a broader audience, whether that's through your waiting room, your intake forms, your front staff, you know, everybody should be on the same page. And I also encourage that when I go into a classroom that I'm there to teach the students, but we should do a staff training because everybody needs to be on the same page. And a lot of times people say, we don't have time. And I get it. I was in PA school and it was terrible to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, but you can make the time and, and the students don't notice another hour or two when they're already immersed in so many hours. So because it's so important because we know the data is crappy. It's crappy and the medical community has constantly done a bad job at servicing this particular marginalized community and the marginalized communities within the marginalized communities. So I, I guess I encourage people to just put themselves in situations that they may never have been medically, go to a conference that you've never been to before that is more queer. Like don't go to the same American Academy of Dermatology conference that you go to every year. Um, you know, just, just think outside the box, keep up with your, your task force and your, your preventative care, like prep. You, every primary care should be talking about prep. Every patient should know about prep according to the, the United States you know, preventative task force that that's, you know, and we're protocol people. So if you're not, if you don't know about PrEP, you don't feel comfortable prescribing it, get comfortable, mm -hmm. which is pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV and preventative. So yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> that's well, thank you so much for all the work you do like during your day hours and then all the additional work you're doing in your evening hours, my goodness. Uh, thank you so much for being such like a, LGBTQ and non-binary advocate and warrior and educator. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for putting together this platform. I've really been enjoying all the, the, the guests you've been inviting uh, and the interviews have been fantastic. So keep doing it. I want to keep listening. <laughs> well, thank you. We'll be doing it for a little while. Well, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your, of your day. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. 
Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.